Yes, indeed, we have switched to the Christmas theme for the Corey Truax Show. Christmas is a day. Advent is a season. We will start with week one of Advent right after this. Angels we have on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains. like mine, I think you talk about Christmas as a season, but technically on the church calendar and through most of church history, Christmas is a day. The season surrounding the day is called the Advent season, and here we are now in year six, I think, five or six of the Corey Truax Show, and I am intent on every year making Advent season part of what we do, and we'll get started on that in just a moment. First, you're listening to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, also wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening. You can also find the show wherever you find podcasts, including on Anchor. My dad reached out to me and said, hey, you you asked people to support the show on Anchor financially, but on Anchor, it's basically impossible to figure out how to do that, and dad is right. So uh, if I figured it out, by the way. If any of you are interested in doing such a thing, if you just Google my show and Anchor, uh, and you go to the actual browser part, like not the app on Anchor, but the browser, it's actually quite easy to find. I'm also going to put it in the show notes for those who are listening to the podcast. If you're listening live on his radio talk at 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. on Saturdays, you can find it on the cor- on, at CoreyTruax.com, CoreyTruax.com as well. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, and you are invited. Speaking of, I will be, Lord willing, preaching all of the Sundays of Advent. Well, technically, the first Sunday of Advent is November 29th. I will not be then, but uh, all of December. And so you're invited out if you're not part of a church home. For those of you who just listen uh, to radio or podcast, those sermons should be on the podcast feed as well. Once we are finished with this Advent thought, I have some listener submissions. Brandon called in with a voicemail on on Anchor, so we're going to listen to him. He's got a question. Kyle sent in a, a question about unity. Got a lot of language right now of, of, of something that I like. I like unity, and there's some folks that I tend to disagree with calling for unity, and so Kyle wants to get my response to that. Uh, new Congressman Madison Cawthorn got into some trouble for something stupid. Uh, there's a lot going on, and so I want to get into all of it to do some smarter, deeper, better talk about everything on the Corey Truax Show, so let's get started. We'll start here. Every week of Advent has a theme. Technically, Advent begins on Sunday, November 29th. Some of you might be listening to me on that day or the day before in the lead-up to it, and so let me get you into that Advent season with week one's theme. Week one is anticipation. Isn't that a great feeling? I think we felt that all through our lives. We have illustrations of anticipation. Do you remember the weeks leading up to summer vacation? You're in elementary school, you're in middle school, and you just have the countdown to you know you don't have to get up and go to school anymore. And those long summers were ahead of you of your own freedom, your own independence to go enjoy yourself. You book a trip to to the mountains, to the beach, to Disney, to some place you've never been, and the weeks leading up, there is the anticipation of it. For those of you who are married, you set the date, you plan the wedding, you get the, the flowers and the meal and the invitations to go out, and there is an anticipation coming that will be culminated. We love anticipation. It's a, it is a fun feeling. Here's, 
Here's what I find though. For all those times of anticipation, almost always what we expected to feel by and that culmination ended up not being as, as great as we thought. That trip wasn't as satisfying as we thought it was going to be. That marriage was harder than we thought it was going to be. That summer wasn't quite as fun as we anticipated. And so anticipation is this incredible thing. I love this feeling, but it has left us wanting in the past. I think we've all experienced that too. And so while that's human experience, we also have this from the scripture. One of the more prominent of scriptures we read this time of year is a prophecy from Isaiah 9, where Isaiah writes that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then he gets into this thing that you've all heard. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Here is this beautiful prophecy that we love to read around Advent season, leading up to Christmas or on Christmas. We love to read that there's a child born, a son is given. If you knew who it was written to, though, I think it changes the context. In just the verses before... Isaiah pronounces over God's people a coming judgment from the Assyrians. There is a promise coming to God's people. You are going to be in bondage. The Assyrians are coming. They will conquer you. But there's hope. That's why it starts with the people who walked in darkness, those who were in the darkness of an Assyrian bondage. Well, they've seen a great light. Well, what's that great light? Well... To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Just in those two sentences, you get this very unique person being prophesied of. A child being born is very human. That happens all the time. Uh, We have all been born, but then a son is given. Not just passively the child born, but some cosmic action that a son is being given, not just a passive being born, but an active being given. And then he is all those things. He's a wonderful counselor in a world where we desperately need wisdom. He's a mighty God in a world where we need the power of God. He's an everlasting father in a world that's left so many fatherless. He is going to be the prince of peace in a world full of conflict. And so here was this promise given to a people that were just also promised, there's coming a time of judgment. You are going into a time of darkness, but do not lose hope. Do not lose heart. He's coming. I wonder if we might feel some of the same needs this Advent season. Maybe in some kind of bondage where we do need the counsel, the wisdom of God. We could use the mighty God, his power, the peace to come into our conflict, this everlasting father to come and protect and to deliver his children. And into that world where we live now, there is a promise. Well, unto you a child is born and a son is given and he is coming to do all of that. This prophecy is a twofold It is of Jesus' first coming that he began the kingdom of God in his first coming, but it is a promise to us right now all the same that he is coming again. 
to establish this kingdom that will be for all of time. I was listening to our sermon at Beachwood Church on Sunday, and uh, my, my big brother, our lead pastor, really doing an incredible job with the series in Revelation. He was going through the church at Philadelphia, so that's in chapter 3 of Revelation. And as a word of comfort to the church at Philadelphia, the, the word is given, I'm coming soon. So the word from G- from Jesus to the to the leaders there and to the people of Philadelphia, it's I'm coming soon. It struck me when I read it. The, the, the father, basically, or the firstborn of the father saying, I am coming soon. I don't know if any of you ever experienced this, and those of you who grew up also in two-parent households. There's this thing that a lot of us heard growing up that was just wait until your father gets home. Basically saying, your father's coming. The way that most of us heard it coming up, that's a threat. There's, don't, don't you have any doubt about it. Wait until your father gets home. And we heard your dad is coming, and it was not a comfort. Brought all kinds of fear. But consider a word spoken into you today, where those same words have a very different meaning. Hey, just wait until your father gets home. There is judgment coming when he arrives, but it is not for his children. And that promise of Advent season one, that anticipation, that's something for us to be feeling. There, is, there should be this tension in our lives that we, we know it's broken. We know the world is broken, that it needs fixing, that it needs that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And we don't just walk around middling through life with no hope. We look towards the anticipation of it all being made right. You can even illustrate this to your kids and how they think about Christmas Day. Whenever you're listening to this, you're about a month from opening those presents. And you know, especially if you have young kids, there is anticipation for it. It is building in them. They are going to explode with joy. They cannot wait to get to those presents. And we have the opportunity to see the anticipation in their eyes and in their hearts and know that is where our heart should be towards the return of our Lord. That he came He came one time as a child, child born, son given, and he is coming again as a conquering king to make all things right. And so let us be a people who look up, look up hopefully, anticipating the joy to come. That'll take us into next week, where Advent Week 2, the theme for Advent Week 2 is joy. We'll talk about that next week at the beginning of that episode. We're going to go ahead and take an early break. We'll come back, we'll leave Advent, and get into, I guess, some of the news of the week and the uh, some of the deeper thinking around the ideas, excuse me, the deeper thinking around the people and the events. We will look at the ideas and the meaning behind them when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. I'm going to admit it's not necessarily healthy, but part of my show prep is just tr- opening my Twitter app and just seeing what hap- what's happening out there on Twitter. And what's happening out on Twitter, at least at the moment I'm recording, reminded me of a conversation I had, and I think I want to start there. 
and we'll call this a listener submission. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, wherever you listen to either on radio or on podcast. Thank you for doing so. You can find me, Corey Truax, wherever you find podcasts and on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I would be grateful if you did. I had a conversation with uh, one of my favorite people in the world, great friend, Wesley, uh, over at Beachwood, and he well, he's our, also our drummer. And he brought up the name of somebody, uh, something Powell, on uh, some of this, some, uh, well, I guess an attorney who was working on voter allegation, voter fraud allegation stuff. And then this was part of my Twitter feed, and so it, it got me thinking about something I wanted to say about this now that I've done the work. It actually was an odd conversation for a minute with Wesley because he knew more than, like he knew a lot more than me. I had not heard any news about this woman, this Powell woman, so I was un- I was unfamiliar, and I, I don't know how everyone's going to react to what I have to say here, but I've maybe got something hard to say. So I want to play for you what this woman is saying about voter fraud allegations, because it is quite intense. And so I'm going to play for you the audio, and then I have some short thoughts because I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, this is Miss Powell. This is one of the attorneys working on voter fraud regarding the presidential election. I'm talking about some massive straight lines up in the vote tallies in the middle of the night after they've supposedly stopped counting. And that's when the Dominion operators went in and injected votes and changed the whole system. And it affects votes around the country, around the world, and all kinds of massive interests of globalist dictators, corporations, you name it. Let me be really clear about what we're hearing. We are hearing an allegation of what would be the greatest crime maybe in the history of the planet. This is not a small claim. This is gigantic. She's actually claiming a company that owns voting software knowingly, not just knowingly, intentionally went about switching votes to choose a president of the United States of America. I am not being dramatic. I cannot think of a more significant crime in the world than what she's alleging. Everybody's against us except President Trump and we the people of the United (laughs) States of America. This is maybe uncomfortable for some of you to hear, and I want to be sensitive to that the best I can, but I also want to be really clear. If this woman cannot end up producing concrete evidence, admissible ev- admissible evidence in front of a court, she should be disbarred for this. That's how high consequence this is. I go back a few weeks to right after the election where I said, Donald Trump's not the center of the universe. 2020 wasn't the last election. 2020 isn't the centerpiece of all things. We, we got to keep having elections for 100 more years. And so if she's out here with no evidence sowing mass distrust in an electronic voting system and there's no reason to sow distrust, there must be consequences against her. She should never be able to practice law in front of a judge in a court of law ever again if she cannot produce some evidence for what she's alleging. She's alleging the greatest crime in human history, or at least American history, You better come hard with evidence if you're going to make that kind of allegation. Now, I I say that harshly. If you can't come up with evidence, she should be be wrecked. Her, Her career should be wrecked if she can't come up with some hardcore evidence of this. Now, if she can, there's got to be consequences in the other direction. 
if she actually has evidence of significant fraud here, we have to take action on future elections. I don't know if that can change anything for an election that's already passed. The Electoral College gets together and votes on December 14th. States are certifying results. I don't see any... I don't say any. There's like a 1% opportunity here of getting to the Supreme Court and having... If, if she can show some evidence. But that, that bar is... Uh, I should have finished that sentence and finished that thought. Of overturning some kind of election result. But that, that bar is very high. We're talking about vote differentials of tens of thousands of votes. And if she can't show voter differentials of tens of thousands of votes in the states that it's important, then she needs to shut up. She needs to get out of the way and start living in a world that we're all going to be here four years from now. I swear this, man. If, if she ends up distracting everybody from those two Georgia contests and Georgia goes the wrong way because everyone was obsessed with this folly and it feels like folly to me, that's going to get me really upset if we're focused on the wrong thing here because Georgia's what should be getting all of our money and all of our attention if you're into political things and human freedom and individual liberty is equality for you. Georgia is where we should be focusing. You know, thus, thus far on the voter allegations, there's not a lot there. I mean, a lot of the affidavits that have been filed other places, not talking about this woman, are basically the people there were mean to us. They were, they were Biden people and they were mean to Trump people. All right, well, that's not voter fraud. They kept us too far away from the tables. Okay? Not voter fraud. And also, at some level, like I have a little bit of incredulity in that we do have, again, a great system. You first start with the, the sign-in. We, we know this many people signed in. There should therefore be this many votes. And so when we go look at how many votes get tallied digitally and then hand recounts in some places, we have found some places where they were off like five or six votes. And in, a, in an election that is uh, separated by thousands of votes, yeah, we got a problem. We got to reconcile. Why, why do we have five or six people that signed in to vote but never voted? Or how do we have five or six votes that aren't accounted for to these people that signed in? Sure, these are all problems to solve. That, that's, that's all true. And I'm, I'm, I even have some sympathy towards just generally having skepticism towards electronic voting and you want a paper trail for everything. Okay, I'm, I'm on board for that. But this kind of allegation is so significant. If there's not real, concrete evidence of it, there should be consequences to the careers of all the people who are pushing it. Because again, we do have to get on with life and we have to have other elections. Uh, I think that's all I had on, on the voter fraud thing. In the end, because I'm again, we, we got to move on with life, I think it's start, starting to become time for Republican leaders to just start saying it. Joe Biden won. Let's all move on. Let's move on with our lives and get over this period of time. And the, I mean, I've been there for a while, but well, I guess we'll see how it plays out. I, I have paid attention the best I can to these voter fraud allegations, and there's just, there's just not a lot there. The, the best cases were out in Nevada trying to establish that people who didn't live in Nevada anymore were voting. And that seems to be true for a few hundred votes in a state that was decided by thousands of votes. I, I have a little trouble here. I don't know why it's so hard to imagine Donald Trump losing an election. 
he, guys, he, he won a Republican primary with like 40% of the primary votes. He won a presidential election in 2016 that no one expected him to win. He, he, he won it while losing the popular vote by 3 million. He won very narrowly in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. That's how I became president. It's not, un, it's not surprising that there would be four years later the, an, an understanding of the people who opposed him to actually show up. They didn't show up. You know, if you look at the voter turnout in 2016, it was historic low. And then the voter turnout in 2020 was an historic high. Like there's, it's not, it's not hard to imagine how this could happen. And then again, there's just, there's some faith to have in our election system because so many people are involved. You get recounts and you get re-canvases that happen through local officials, not federal officials, and not just companies who own voting machines. We, we actually have a, a really good voting system, and I am concerned that the way we have adjudicated 2020 affects faith in elections going forward, and that's not healthy. It's not healthy for our republic to have had that kind of problem. All right, we got to move on. Uh, there, I got sent this one by... I can't find who sent this to me because I just wrote it down. Uh, there was some conspiracies, as there always are, going on YouTube, some conspiracy theory stuff around... Uh, COVID-19 and the, the coming power grab of the federal government over COVID-19. The, and so I just, I have some quick thoughts. One, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into conspiracy stuff. Uh, I, I need evidence for everything. Oh, oh, I got a good, this is a fun tangent. So let me connect the voter fraud thing and conspiracy theories to, a, to one of the points that I think, I can, I can get everyone on the same page here. When there's a police shooting, I make no assumptions. I don't make the assumption that the person who got shot was right or the cop was wrong or the other other direction. When there are police shootings, I immediately say, I would like some evidence, please. What are the details? How did we get here? Because there aren't good guys, bad guys on cops and people who get shot by cops. Because every, every situation, every... Uh, Every interaction is different. I don't do categories because categories turns your brain off. You don't think of people as individuals. You just put them in a category and then you make your moral judgment off of that. And so I always demand evidence. When there is a police shooting and there is immediately an allegation of racial racial prejudice against it, even though my instinct is to believe that there was racial prejudice, that is my instinct, I will at the same time know my instincts are often wrong. I'm wrong a lot. And so I would like some evidence, please. I would need some evidence to make a determination if the thing I'm assuming or all of you are reporting, I need some evidence for it. I don't just start at a given place and make an assumption about police shootings. Now, I say it that way because I think that endears me to a lot of you. A lot of you will be in, you, you, you find that appealing. All right, now I just take that same principle over to voter fraud. I take that same principle over to voter allegations. I'm going to need some evidence, please. Up until the moment I've got it? No, I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not just going to believe you. I don't just believe narratives. I need evidence. I demand evidence. And then the same thing for these COVID conspiracy people. That this is some kind of planned or a pandemic to get some kind of outcome for powerful people. Or I'm going to need some evidence, please. I, I don't just believe stuff. I'm going to have to have evidence for it. So, on the COVID side, I, while I don't believe in any given conspiracy, I think it's important to say this. 
The natural state of humanity over time is the accumulation of power. The United States started 240 years ago with power very spread out to cities, counties, townships, states, and then those states create a federal government and power was very dispersed. It is inarguable over the last 240 years we have continued to accumulate power to the top. Cities became less powerful, counties became more powerful, and then the states became more powerful, the federal government. And over time, all that power, if you can just imagine some kind of sieve or some kind of squeeze, it's squeezing at the bottom, power is getting squeezed from the bottom to the top, and all of it just gets accumulated in the federal government, and then it doesn't get accumulated in the federal government. We start squeezing power out of Congress and putting it in the executive branch, or squeezing power out of the judicial and putting it in the executive branch. And the problem is we've squeezed all the power into one office, the presidency. And I, I exaggerate a little bit on that because there's still decent checks and balances on power in our system. But we have, we have the, the nature of humanity is to accumulate power in one place. It is also the nature of humanity to seek opportunity to accumulate power. And crisis is a time to accumulate power. Rahm Emanuel Barack Obama's chief of staff, or his first one, got famous for that. He said, we don't want to let a good crisis go to waste. And so they used their financial crisis of 2008 to try to remake the economy. They wanted to try to remake how banking worked and investments worked. They wanted to remake how uh, consumer protection agency, that's what they created, consumer protection agency, how that worked. They wanted to use the crisis to get some things they otherwise already wanted. In 2001, after 9-11, Folks on the, on the right, who are more authoritarian in nature, they found an opportunity. Here's 9-11. People are terrified. They want to be protected. And there are some interests uh, from organizations who are typically associated with the right, so military, intelligence people, and they wanted the Patriot Act. They wanted to be able to glean more information on the American people, get into your privacy, get into your digital life. And so they used a crisis to get a thing they wanted. Both sides do this over time. And COVID-19 is a crisis. It's a global crisis. And you can definitely believe there are people with a desire to accumulate more power for themselves, to go ahead and just set a precedent that the government can do whatever it wants and no one can tell it no. And yeah, I'm sure a lot of that's happening. But the idea of this, these smoke-filled rooms of powerful, pe powerful, faceless people and manipulating the events of the world. It, it takes an amount of faith that I don't have. One, again, I, I, I demand evidence of it, but also I, I've met people. I've met humans. We're not that good at coordinating really difficult things. We're not that good at concealing information. We're not great liars. We tend to get caught when we do stuff. And so there, there has to be this faith that there is some cabal of evildoers at the top who are basically superhuman and can coordinate events to never be dis to, to discover their dastardly deeds can never be detected because they're all superhumans and they they, just, they have these powers to not ever be uh, to ever be contested. And so uh, not on board with any of these YouTube COVID conspiracy theories, but we should be vigilant to recognize. People with power want more power, and they will use crisis to try to accumulate it. Next. You know what? Let's do this one from Kyle. Kyle sends in an email that just says, you know, here we are 
in this transition. And we have the Biden administration talking a lot about unity. Folks on the left saying we want to unify. And that's language I've used a lot. I'd love a unified country. Not a fan of division. Don't like all the strife. And so he's basically asking my thoughts on that. I mean, he's got, it's, it's, more, it's more developed than that. And thanks, Kyle, for the email. I'm not going to read all of it there, but he just wants to know my reaction generally. Well, um, it's, it's hard, right? So I, I, it, that kind of messaging does resonate with me. It resonates with me, the idea of having some baseline unity amongst the American people. And recognizing that unity can't mean that we all just agree with each other. That does feel like what it is on the left a lot. On the left, it feels like, hey, let's all unify. And the way we'll do that is all of you should agree with me. All of my positions, you take my positions. And if you don't take my positions, you are a racist, bigoted, homophobe. That feels like their unity. And I, I can recognize there's not going to ever be unity on all the policies. I want a really small federal government. I want a federal government that does basically nothing. That's a very unpopular position. I know that. I'm not going to find unity with people on that. I want the bare bones of tax structure. I want super simplistic. And and therefore, I want to do some unpopular things like getting rid of almost all of our labyrinth tax system and just making it super simple. And that's unpopular because then people go, wait, what do I lose my mortgage tax credit? Do I lose my childcare tax credit? Do I do I do do I lose all these tax credits? And I'm saying, yes, you do. But we're going to make it so much more simple and your taxes are going to be lower. But it's unpopular. So I know my the idea that you find unity around policy, that, that's not going to work. There's not going to be unity in the country around policy. And that's good. We actually need competing ideas. This is a... Uh, an issue on the right and on the left, there seems to be a group on both sides that wants to destroy the other one. Not not win on like a battlefield of ideas and we come back every two years and do it again with different elections, but literally destroy, silence the other people. We don't want to interact with them at all. I was actually having a conversation here recently about some old Ann Coulter books. And Ann Coulter went insane, but she went on a Trump worship thing and then now she thinks Trump's the worst and she's an insane person. But she has a book from maybe 20 years ago called How to Talk to a Liberal If You Must. And I look back on that, just think about how unhealthy that is. What do you mean, if you must? Yeah, we must. We do need to talk to each other. We need to to understand where each other's coming from. And so I, I, I have in me an affinity for messages of unity. I like that. But I know we can't find unity around their policies. For example, we're talking in a minute about student loan forgiveness. Well, I think their student loan forgiveness plans are bonkers stupid. And I'll go this far, immoral. And we'll talk about it more in a minute. So we obviously don't find unity on that. We don't find unity on their student loan policies. There's not going to be, you're not going to find unity with me on your trying to raise taxes. You're not going to find unity with me on trying to shut down the economy over COVID. There's no unity on the policy. And so... I like the message. I just think functionally it doesn't work. The, the only way to find unity is some baseline things. And one of our problems is that a lot of folks on the left, maybe Joe Biden doesn't fit in this category, maybe, but a lot of those behind him and that empower him do feel this way. So examples. 
we should have unity over our history. We love our history. We love the independent spirit, the entrepreneurial spirit, the pioneer spirit that it took to come here, looking for freedom, looking for our own individual freedom. We love the history of free enterprise, of invention, ingenuity. These are American ideals, and we love our history. And if we could unify around that, that would be great. We might want different policies, but we do think our country is good, and it comes from a good place despite its sins. But the folks on the left say, no, our country's bad, it's evil. If we could unify around general philosophy, that we actually do believe in individualism, that we don't put people in groups. You are not your racial group, your education group, even your familial group. You're just a person. You're you, and you're responsible for you. If we could get behind that philosophy, philosophy, personal responsibility, you're not the responsibility of the state. You're the, you are your responsibility. If we could agree on our history and our philosophy, those are places of unity. And then maybe policy works out of that, and policy will still look differently. But that's the only place you can have any real unity. You got to have the same story. You got to have the same philosophy. And we're so far apart on it that while I am attracted by the message, I know that functionally it's just not there right now, unfortunately. When we come back, I want to talk about the student loan situation, that there are some policies being proposed out there. I got a voicemail we're going to play from Brandon, and then there's a story about Madison Cawthorn I want to get to. We'll get to that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. decide if I just ramble too much or if the show is just too short because it feels like we have run out of like time on some some things I really want to get into so we're going to make quick work of it here on the Corey Truax show thank you for sticking with us on his radio talk or wherever you find the podcast let's get to it it does appear that one of the first policy priorities of the incoming Biden administration is regarding student loan forgiveness and so I want to go ahead and plant my flag policy wise on this idea Right now, it seems that people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are alleging that the Biden administration, that a president has the authority to just come in and forgive a whole lot of debt. Because uh, if you don't know this, of the, one, I think it's $1.5, $1.6 trillion of outstanding student loan debt, vast majority of it is owned by you and I. It's owned by the taxpayer through subsidy, and through, uh, that's who the actual lender is. The Department of Education is the lender of the vast majority of student loans. People don't know this. That was actually included in the 2010 Affordable Care Act. One of the ways in which they funded that piece of garbage idea was the interest they were going to get off of student loans. Now, there's an idea here that they can just straight up forgive some chunk of it uh, as, a, as, as a president. The president would have authority to do that. I would argue they don't. They've not actually pr- produced any legal argument that the president can just come in and just say, all right, it's forgiven. We're forgiving that, that debt. And if, if they tried that, I would want to see the, the lawsuits because I, I think it is illegal. A president doesn't have the authority to do that. But let's just talk about it philosophically for a minute because, yeah, there's a the president doing it, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders calling for it, uh, and it's, that's the event in the news, but what's the ideas behind it? Well, let's start here personal responsibility should be one of our underlying values. It is indeed a biblical value. 
Sometimes it's said quite starkly in Scripture, that if, if you don't work, you don't eat. Or a man that doesn't take care of his family is a, as a man that's not worth having that family, the privilege of having a, having a family. There is throughout the Proverbs the idea of the dullard, the, the person in folly who doesn't take care of himself. Personal responsibility is a fundamental biblical worldview, but also an American worldview. And so then we take that concept, that principle, and we apply it to any given policy proposal. So, student loans. Who's responsible for those? Well, I, here's, I'm someone who's paid off my student loans. I made a decision to go get into some debt because I thought it was a good investment. And I, for me, I was right. It worked out for me. If you've gotten to know me over the over the years through the show, you might know I'm not handy. I'm not particularly even all that bright. So I I needed this certificate. I needed this credential to go out into the working world, and it, it took me some places. It, it also was valuable to me in that I was able to connect to, build a network to other people who were going to become high-achieving. For me, it was worth it. For some other people, it wasn't. It was a very bad investment. They made a wrong investment. Now, who's responsible for that? Well, they are. And if it would have been a bad responsi- a bad investment for me, you know who's responsible? Me. When I put my money in the wrong thing, if I have some money and I put it in some company that's going to try to come along and compete with Walmart or Amazon, and that company goes over and I lose my money, that's my fault. That's where my money went. I made the decision. I suffered the consequences. And so as a matter of personal responsibility, of course there shouldn't be student loan forgiveness because you did it. You're responsible for it. Now here's the morality of it, the immorality of a student loan forgiveness because that's just taxpayer forgiveness. They can call it student loan forgiveness all they want, but all that means is we, the taxpayer, pick up all that tab. So let's say that happens. People like me, we should demand our money back. I demand my money back. I spent all this time paying off all these loans. No one helped me with it. I did it myself. I was personally responsible. And what an idiot I was. I should have just held on. I should have just went into default, went delinquent. I shouldn't, should have not paid my bills. I shouldn't have done the adult thing. I shouldn't have been responsible. I should have just waited for some politician to come along and just snap his or her fingers and forgive it. What a moron I was for being a person of integrity paying what I owe to people. And so there's people like me. It's, it is an injustice for me in that I didn't take out other people's student loans. They did. They're responsible for them. I'm responsible for mine. I'm not responsible for theirs. And then consider another immorality to it. Consider someone who didn't go to college at all. And maybe they made, it, they made that decision because of their own financial wisdom. I'm going to take a quick little tangent here. I'm coming back. So keep keep that person in your mind, the person that never went to college. I am starting to notice now, even people in my own life, because of how expensive college has gotten, and there's a lot of skepticism around it, uh, because, because of situations where people have had their financial lives wrecked or deeply affected by their student loans, that there's almost an angry, visceral reaction against the idea of their kid going to college. The idea of it is almost offensive to some people. So, But let's take those folks. They are the Dave Ramsey types. 
there is no such thing as good debt, and there's no way they were ever going to go to college. They're going to work their blue-collar job, which are totally honorable in every way, and they're going to live their lives that way. Cool. Well, they made their financial decision. And now they're out working, working hard and making a good living for them and their family. And they are a taxpayer. They're not a, a net tax taker. In terms of benefits and tax credits and all that, their family pays into the system. You're telling me that family is going to pay off the women's study, women studies degree of the person who decided to go to Columbia? I mean the one in New York City. That family, that working class family, husband works at quick trip gas, the quick trip convenience stores. His wife was trying to make a stay at home thing work with a part time job somewhere. That family who pays into the system, they're paying off the general studies degree of someone who went out to Southern California because they thought it would be a good party. That's wrong. It's unjust. And so what, uh, the, the, the debt that currently exists, what should be the policy? Everybody pay it off. You did it. You're responsible for it. So pay off your own debt. We, this is in part what a, what a decent, high-integrity society is built on. Pay your debts. Now, what about going forward? What, how do we fix this? Because there's a problem. When you stare at $1.5 trillion in debt, well, of course there's a problem here. Well, I've got some ideas. How about this? Let's go ahead and get the federal government out of lending altogether. Let's actually use the market. Let's use free markets to make college financing make sense. For example, do you know how absurd it is that someone can be going to Clemson University. I'm just using them because they're the, the local big public university. How absurd it is that someone can go to Clemson University to get an engineering degree. Let's go with um, electrical engineering and can be going to get a, let's just go biz, a, a general business degree, business administration. And the fact that they pay the same tuition. Well, that's not the same investment. One of them is going and majoring in tourism, and the other one is going to major, uh, major in some kind of chemistry. And they pay the same thing. And the loan they get is going to have the same terms, same interest rate, same payback terms. That doesn't make any sense. If I was an actuary at a bank, if I was a lender, and I look at the person who has this academic achievement level, they're telling me they want to be an engineer, and I know what they're going to be earning at the conclusion of their education. Oh, my interest rate for them, my interest in wanting to have them borrow from me, well, that goes up a little bit. I want to give them better terms. I want to invest in that person. And the person who says they want to go into journalism. All right, well, you're a little higher risk. I don't think you're going to have the same earnings as the engineering person. Your interest rate is probably going to be a little higher. And you know what that does is put then some pressure on the colleges. And we allow the colleges to finally be innovative and actually change their costs. Why would a journalism pay major pay the same as a chemical engineer or whatever you call those people? Why on earth would they pay the same? It doesn't make any sense. And let the market do its work going forward. Let the banks and the actual lenders determine what's a good investment and what's not. This is, this is one of our problems. One of our problems is that you can come out of high school with your 2.5 GPA and your 900 SAT, 
you decide you're going to be a biology major because you think you're going to be a, you're going to get into medicine. You're, and the bottom line is that I don't want to be a jerk. You're not going to get into medicine. Some of us, not all, all of us, have the academic prowess to make it through a biology program or pre-med program and go on to med school. I'm sorry, but not all of us, not all of us have the ability. Okay, so what, what do we do there? Instead of the federal government lending that person the money who's going to flunk out in a year, let the banks, let the lenders say, yeah, we're not, we're not in. We're out on that. Like, you're going to have to figure that out yourself. And that person then has to make adult decisions. So, student loans going towards the past, absolutely no forgiveness. That is unjust to the, to the rest of us. It's unjust to me and to a lot of you. Going forward, we can get innovative on how to solve it. Final thing here is from Brandon, listener to the show and a friend of mine as well, I should say. I uh, left a voicemail about the Christian and our relationship to politicians during campaigns. It's, it is thoughtful. It's some good thoughts here. I want to finish the show with that. So here is one of your fellow listeners. His name is Brandon. Hey, Corey. I have a thought about this divisive political culture that we have created for ourselves and that we find ourselves in specifically for one who claims to be a follower of Jesus. That going forward, it is morally wrong for the follower of Jesus to publicly display support for a political figure, primarily because it alienates a large group of people for the sake of the gospel. It diminishes your effectiveness of sharing the gospel on social media or signs in the yard or things like that. Vote how you choose to vote, but don't publicly display it for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all. And thanks, Brandon, for the call. By the way, you can do that over on the Anchor app. You can leave a voicemail. You can also, by the way, just go to the Anchor browser, anchor.fm, look for the Corey Act Show. You can support the show financially there. And I'm not just telling you you can. I'm asking you to do it monthly. Now, the su- summarizing that call, we have the Christian whose witness might be affected by the public identification with a political figure. And Brandon asks a thought-provoking question. Is it immoral for the Christian to attach him or herself to Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Nikki Haley, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris? Is it an immoral thing for the Christian to attach themselves and their name to that person? Well, I have immediately this instinct. Unless I have scripture to straight up call something immoral, I don't like doing it. I, I think there's a lot of room in this, what is that term, theologi- uh, theologically? It's called adiaphria. adiaphria. The, uh, the doctrine of disputed things. There's a dispute about something, but the dispute doesn't put you in or outside of the faith. And so there are some things that are not sinful, but maybe unwise. And so is it immoral to identify with a political figure? I'm going to go with no. But then the second question, is it wise and I might argue, no. I think it's really wise to identify with ideas. Here are the things we believe. And now if a politician happens to believe those same things, then we are so glad that politician's on board with that, and we support that politician's support of that idea. But I think Brandon is right. 
we actually are living in a world where politics is religion for a lot of people. And so we, we spent all of our time doing apologetics and evangelism training to teach you how to witness to a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, and to a Muslim. And what we should have been doing was doing apologetics and evangelism, evangelism training on how to witness to a Republican and a Democrat. Because those are the religions. And so the, the issue there being, so if, if you're going to a Muslim, one of the things you don't want to do is say something nasty about Muhammad off the, off the bat. You don't do that. You don't want to identify with, I don't know, Cortez or one of the, one of the, one of the conquerors of, of, the, of the southern part of Spain where the Muslims were. Because as soon as you start, like if you're wearing that t-shirt, if on your bumper sticker is the name of one of the conquerors of that part of Spain where the Muslims were, the, I think the Moors or what they were called, or Northern Africa, well, you've turned that person off. And if you're going to the, the Mormons, if you're going to the Jehovah's Witnesses, whoever you're going to, if you've got that t-shirt, that sticker, or your social media feed is full of a person that, that they oppose viscerally, then your actual core message may not get through. It's part of what I talked about last week. I, I talked about it as a, of, as a matter of credibility. Let's make sure we are being credible and how we talk about political things, because our, ch- our chief message is Christ, Him crucified and resurrected. So be careful about what you say politically, because if what you say politically is bonkers and has no evidence, well, then why would anyone else believe what you say? Know, know the thing that's the most important that you say, and the most important things you say are the things you say about spiritual matters, the God of the Bible and the God of the universe. And so, to Brandon's question, are the most important thing we can say to a non-believer is an, evang- an evangelistic method? And if we're allowing our political alliances and political allegiances to get in the way of, to be a stumbling block to that person hearing what we have to say about Christ, Him crucified and resurrected, then we don't have first things first. So, uh, to Brandon, thank you for the call. I wouldn't call it immoral, but I would call it probably unwise that it's better to identify with ideas instead of politicians. You can be like Brandon, and I hope you will. Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is where you can find the show and support it. You can also leave a voicemail on the Anchor app if you want to be played on these airwaves and on the podcast. Thank you for listening to The Corey Act Show. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.